Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. This is the final installment in our series marking the 50th anniversaries of the crewed Apollo missions. Oh no, the final. Uh, my name is Jason Snell. And I'm joined as always by my co-host, uh, Stephen Hackett. And uh, it is, yes, it's the last moon mission ever as we're talking. Apollo 17. Apollo 17. We'll talk about the future later, but right now we're talking about the past. Apollo 17, final moon mission. There had been some later ones planned, but but as we've spoken about previously, they got canned because of budgetary issues and lack of support, all those things. Uh, But this being the final Apollo mission, many wanted to push the boundaries set by previous missions. As such, Apollo 17 holds a bunch of records, including the greatest distance of a spacecraft from a spacecraft during an extravehicular activity. So that's, Mm -hmm. you have the lunar lander, how far you go, 7.6 kilometers. Yeah. Pretty far away away. If something happens, you got to walk back. That would be a bummer. Yeah. You ride that moon buggy. That actually was the limit is that they, they needed to have a walk back. Apollo 17 also collected the largest lunar sample return, around 115 kilograms. We'll get into some of the reasons why later. Yeah. Spoiler alert. This episode's going to be about rocks. It is. It is. <laughs> and uh, the longest time in lunar orbit, uh, six days and four hours, and the greatest number of lunar orbits being 75 for our friend up in the command service module. Yeah, it's 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 sad talking about the last mission in part because you can see here they're really airing it out now. Like they've done enough of these missions that they have really extended what is possible in an Apollo mission here and shown what could be done, but it is the last one. So this is all that they were uh, they were able to do. They were trying to do as much science as possible. Mm-hmm. That, that really was the goal here, knowing it was the last mission, to, that they were not going to have human eyes on the surface of the moon again for who knows how long. So they tried to do as much science as possible. And it had a huge impact on the crew selection. Um, we've talked a lot about the somewhat oblique method that Deke Slayton especially used to choose the crews for Apollo missions. This mission was different in the sense that there were some changes in order to prioritize science. So the lunar module pilot on this mission is Harrison Schmidt, Jack Schmidt, as they called him. Uh, Harrison Schmidt broke the mold set by previous missions because he is the only Apollo moonwalker without a background in military aviation. He's a science guy. He's got a PhD in geology. His undergraduate degree also in geology. The, the man loved rocks. <laughs> uh, and Schmidt was really influential when it came to the scientific goals on the moon. He was, as a scientist astronaut, a participant in all of the uh, all of the conversations about what the scientific goals and the geological goals were in terms of astronauts observing both from orbit and on the surface so that, so that they could learn what they were seeing and express what they were seeing and choose what rocks to pick up. Um, and so, uh, so Schmidt was uh, a key part of this put on the crew because he was a scientist. And it also makes him the first scientist to fly uh, past low Earth orbit. He was part of NASA astronaut group four. That was the first group selected outside of the normal path of being a test pilot. I mean, if you just listen to the sections of all these Apollo episodes where we talk about the crew, it's like flew this for the Navy, did this, you know, for the Air Force, whatever it was. And like you said, Schmidt was different. 
Uh, he served on the backup crew of Apollo 15 and then was selected for Apollo 18, but it and 19 were canceled. And so the community of lunar geologists working both within and beside NASA really pressured the agency to move Schmidt up to fly on the final mission. It was their last chance. Yeah, it definitely caused a lot of friction. Um, the commander of Apollo 18 thought that they should just move the whole crew up. <laughs> of course he did. And that's not what they did. They just moved Schmidt up because this was that moment that, that was like, okay, we, this is our last shot at this. We can't not have the eyes and the brain of a geologist on the moon since that is one of the biggest things that we're doing here is geology. So Schmidt got added. The rest of the crew of Apollo 17 is a lot more what you would expect. The commander was Gene Cernan. Let's tick off his resume here, right? Went to Purdue University, got an electrical engineering degree. That is not one of those degrees you can snooze through. Serious stuff. He joined the Navy. He was ROTC. Ended up as a decorated fighter pilot and as the lunar module pilot of Apollo 10 in May 1969. As you may remember, Apollo 10, like lunar module pilot, but he didn't go to the moon. Yes, Apollo 10. They took the lamb down. Yep. <laughs> and then we're like, mm, psych, we're not landing here. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, they because they, they couldn't, although they thought about it, but they couldn't. Uh, so this time he's going to actually get to the surface of the moon. Get to close that, that final gap this time, which is cool. Yeah. Command module pilot duties fell to Ronald Evans. Like Cernan, uh, Evans was an electrical engineering major, but this time at the University of Kansas. Yeah, totally different. Yeah. Uh, became a Navy fighter pilot, flew missions in Vietnam, and he had previously been on the backup crew for Apollo 14. Right. So he's waiting for his first chance, and he's going to be riding around in the command module. Their backup crew is interesting, too. Traditionally, backup crews were astronauts sort of rotating through before um, commanding missions, but there were no more missions to command here. So what they did is they took three Apollo veterans, John Young, Charlie Duke, and Stu Rusa, and made them the backup crew. And that was by design. Uh, didn't have to train new astronauts to back up and then not fly on an Apollo mission. They just decided to go with the veterans and that reduced costs and time. Mm -hmm. uh, they could step in if needed, but otherwise they were not. It, it was the seasoned backup crew. Again, this is a story of this mission. Knowing it's the last one, things are a little bit different. Yep, makes a lot of sense. Like previous Apollo missions, the command and lunar modules were given separate call signs. In this case, the command service module was named America, with the limb being named Challenger. In fact, after Schmidt stepped onto the moon from Challenger, he stated, I think the next generation ought to accept this as a challenge. Let's see them leave footprints like these. Yeah, Schmidt was definitely um, aware of the idea that this was the last Apollo mission and that uh, he gave some thought to sort of like what happens next, as mm -hmm. we all are still doing 50 years later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it was definitely part of his part of his process uh, even then. Where do you land? You've got a geologist on board. Now you need to find a landing site that suits that crew. Um, Jack Schmidt and others lobbied for a landing site on the far side of the moon. They were going to put up a couple of weather satellites in uh, an orbit right at the libration point where you could see the backside of the moon as well as the Earth. Far side ge geology is very different. A lot of crater impacts, not the big mare that we see on the near side. Um, it was talked about 
there was a scenario where they could do it using weather satellites, like I said, that were kind of off the shelf. But here's the thing. They were at the end. They were at the end of the rope. And so going to NASA and saying, we want money and going to the government and saying, we want money for these satellites and they have to stay up there or you won't be able to hear from us and all of that. And there was very strong pushback inside and out that basically said, look, we're not going to do anything new like that. Uh, and so uh, they decided not to do a landing on the far side, which has still not been accomplished. It's kind of too bad. But, you know, really, it was that idea of like, what would what would they have done if they had more missions lined up? This is an example. They probably mm-hmm. would have done a far side landing using those weather sta- satellites that they would have launched as relay satellites. But uh, this was wrap up phase. So they didn't get to do any of that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because while they pushed the boundaries on what they could do longer EVAs, longer missions, longer drives in the rover. The sort of bones of the mission for 17 were well-practiced at this point. In fact, reading through all this material, yeah, like nothing out of the ordinary happened on 17. Like they didn't really have any major issues with hardware or even with the flight trajectory and things like that. A lot of that was dialed in. So I can see the, in addition to the budgetary concerns, I can see the, hey, look, this is the last one. Let's push the envelope in areas that really matter scientifically and kind of leave the the overall mission profile basically the same. Right. The tra- the tragedy of it is it it was so routine that like you could see like, well, they got it down, right? They got it down. And so what you want to do next is push it further and do more. Mm-hmm. And instead they reach this point and they're like, we're not going to go further. So just do it and get home safely. And there was definitely a sense in... Uh, in one of the books that I read that um, a lot of the decisions during the mission from mission control were very much of the of the kind of like, look, we haven't lost anybody on the moon yet and we don't want to. And I like there, there there's the attitude of we don't want to lose people. But I don't know. I really got the sense that a lot of them were saying, like, let's not take any chances because we can see the finish line and we're going to cross the finish line and be done. And while I get it on one level, on another level, it's really di- disappointing because you can see that it's all just kind of working here and it's working really well. And yet everybody knows like it's over at this point which mm-hmm. is it's it's a real shame and the idea that they would have gotten a chance to do far side geology if there had just been a little more support oh well it didn't happen didn't happen there's always the future sure uh, ultimately the spot that was picked is a lunar valley named Taurus Litro uh, on Apollo 15 Al Warden actually spotted this location from the command service module in his orbits And it was chosen because it was expected that the crew could get both younger surface material from those ancient lava flows you mentioned, as well as older material because there were some nearby mountains, kind of had a little bit of everything. And it was around 750 kilometers east of where 15 had landed. So a new area, a lot of variety, again, trying to really dial this in for the geology angle. Yeah, and that that idea, you know, keeping in mind, we know a lot more now, in fact, in part thanks to what was collected on these missions about the history of the moon, they were making some assumptions that turned out not to be quite right, but they're motivated by like interesting geology. And actually, you see a lot of this, Stephen, you and I have talked about this a lot, when they talk about where they're targeting Mars lander and rover missions. Mm -hmm. It's a similar thing where you're using kind of satellite imagery and trying to look at very small aspects 
aspects of terrain and saying that makes that an interesting place that we should go. And you're making some guesses. Um, it's very much the same geology as they as they taught a lot of these astronauts where they're flying over terrain. Because if you're in the command module, that's the kind of analysis you're doing is from a high above. Um, but you're taking your best guess. Essentially, it's like this looks like something that on Earth could be this. Let's see. And then they they made their choice. And, and Taurus Litro is what they chose for this. Okay, so let's get to the moon one last time. Apollo 17, the only night launch of the full Saturn V stack, launched just after midnight on December 7th, 1972. There was a brief delay caused by liquid oxygen in the third stage, but they worked around it. It was the only Apollo launch, this is amazing, delayed due to Saturn V hardware issues. Hmm. Um, but they just sped up uh on their way to the moon in order to uh, you know fit in the launch window and all of that but uh the stories about this launch are also legion there are so many people who went out to see it and have those stories about it lighting up the sky and then they hear the big rumble and you know the the uh seeing a saturn V, you know the largest uh rocket ever launched uh at this point and it's a night launch must have been absolutely spectacular. Uh, incredible, I'm sure. Uh, five hours after launch, we get one of those famous Apollo-era photographs. Uh, this one is called the Blue Marble. Uh, it's taken at a distance of about 29,000 kilometers from Earth. And this image shows up just everywhere in history after this. It was kind of a, uh, a cornerstone to a lot of environmental causes in the decades to come. NASA officially credits the entire crew with all of the images from the Apollo missions because they all have cameras and, you know, by the time you get back, it's hard to sort it out. But many believe that Schmidt took the photo uh, and that seems to be have been confirmed in recent years and no human since another Apollo being 17 being the last one. No one's been far enough from Earth to photograph the whole thing. We can do it with satellites, right? But we haven't done with humans because in low Earth orbit, you're not far enough out so I think once we get a crew on the SLS and future Artemis missions, I suspect we'll see a, a retake of the blue marble image. But as soon as you click on the link, you'll recognize it. It's it's instantly recognizable. Right. Or those uh, the um, the Starship missions that they want to send people around the moon, um, which they're also working on. Yeah, we, we're about to enter a case where this thing that's 50 years old will finally be replicated again, but I think it is an interesting point that it's been 50 years since a human being took a picture of the whole Earth from a distance. Going with our theme of this not being, you know, the, that they kind of got Apollo missions down at this point, the journey to the moon was pretty quiet. They did a little course correction burn at one point. There was a jammed latch between the CSM and the LEM, but they resolved that pretty easily. Like they got the, they not only is it smooth, but they got the troubleshooting down too at this point. Mm -hmm. And so on December 11th, the, uh, Schmidt and Cernan got into the LEM and made the journey from orbit down to the surface, setting Challenger down only about 200 meters east of their target landing point. So let's talk about science. Final mission. Stuff to the gills with scientific experiments. Yeah. Uh, but but we have the old standby, the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiments Package, or ALSEP, uh, uh, the best, uh, which included a wide range of experiments for the surface of the moon. All right, here we go. It is acronym time. Yes. And the ALSEP changed from mission to mission. It wasn't always the same. For 17, here's what we got. We got the HFE, 
That's the heat flow experiment, which measured the rate of heat flow from the interior of the moon. There had been an HFE in previous Apollo mission, but this one uh, was the only previous, only recycled acronym from previous ALSEPs. There was the LSG, which is uh, not my wife's initials before we got married. <laughs> Actually, it is, but it's not for her. She was not alive yet. No, she was alive. Oh, she was a little baby. Maybe it was for her, Steve. Maybe. I like it. No, it's uh, it's saying here it wasn't. It was the Lern- Lunar Service Gravimeter. That's what it was. Mm. Uh, measures alterations in the lunar gravity field at the site. You may know about that. It's one of the quirks of the moon is that it's so lumpy on the inside that it has what's called mass cons or mass concentrations, which actually mean that there are parts of the moon that are, have more gravity or have less gravity. It makes it very hard to be in lunar orbit because lunar orbit around an object that's so lumpy means the gravity field is weird. So the, the LSG was about measuring lunar gravity field. That's kind of cool. There was LACE. The Lunar Atmospheric Composition Experiment. Always good when an acronym is also a word. Yes. Uh, trying to say, what, hey, is there an atmosphere at the moon, however tenuous, and what is it made up of? There was LSPE, the Lunar Seismic Profiling Experiment, which was a seismometer trying to detect uh, moon quakes, basically. And L-E-M-E, I guess you could squint and say LEAM? LEAM. The lunar, LEAM. It, LEAM. The Lunar Ejecta and Meteorites Experiment which measure the velocity and energy of dust particles because the moon is always being showered by dust and micrometeorites. So they were going to measure what was going on with that. In another example of by Apollo 17, things were dialed in. Uh, Some of these were still running over five years later, but in 1977, NASA pulled the plug on them over budgetary issues. They were deep in the, uh, the space shuttle construction era at that point. Yeah, the money money just ran out. So mm-hmm. They turned them off, or they stopped Turn. listening to them. Yep. Um, lunar rover's back yes. as well. Hooray! Our favorite lawn chair on the moon, on wheels, golf cart with lawn chairs. Uh, it was it was used to rack up thirty seven no thirty five point seven kilometers of driving. That's a lot of driving on the moon. It is. A lot of bouncing around on the moon. In addition to its normal responsibilities, uh, the rover was used to move and install, uh, I got another acronym for you, the TGE, the Traverse Gravimeter Experiment, which again was studying the internal structure of the moon and the weird gravity field, uh, but they put it elsewhere, right? They wanted it to be in a a more remote location, Mm -hmm. and that's why they uh, took it with them on the rover. One of the few hardware issues they had on the moon was one of the... I guess, fenders of the lunar rover designed to keep dust off the astronauts. They had an issue with it. And so they just made their they own. Got, well, <laughs> so uh, fixed it up. I mean, an, uh, uh, an astronaut knocked it off uh, is what happened. <laughs> <laughs> and then they used like a, yeah, like a, like a binder and some other stuff to make a, uh, a fake one that lasted almost until the end. And then right at the end, it fell off too, but they were done at that point. A little lunar fender bender. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Like, who, yeah, I'm not at fault. Somebody else must have done it. There was a mean man driving another yeah. lunar rover. Yeah. Knocked like, off the, no, that's not what happened. No, I think Capcom would see right through that. It's like, you broke it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's not, it's not like I'm carrying a camera here of, oh, I am. Um, Yeah. The rover was also used in the Surface Electrical Properties or SEP experiment in which electrical signals traveled from a transmitting device through the ground back to the rover to measure the electrical properties of the surface. Another one of those things where there's somebody 
in a in a science lab somewhere back on Earth and being like, I've got an idea for a thing they could do. <laughs> Let's run some current and see what happens. Uh, I love the ingenuity of that. Um, okay. Apollo 17. Schmidt's out there. He's a geologist. We got a professional geologist on the surface of the moon. It's time for rock talk. Yes. There's a lot. There's a lot of rocks going on. They made three EVAs, very long EVAs. I, I don't want to overstate Schmidt's ability to to um, uncover rocks because the astronauts who were fighter pilots and test pilots by trade, as we've said, Schmidt was very involved in the process of getting his fellow astronauts trained up in being field geologists. And by all accounts, not all of them took to it, but lots of them took to it. I think that the geologists involved in the Apollo program were very impressed that these guys who were aeronautical engineers and electrical engineers applied their brains to a very different subject, which is geology, and and got competent in it. And I think it shows you how professional they were yeah. that they that they did that. But Schmidt, again, is working with a lot more and it's not a crash course. And uh, and so him being out there was a big deal, and that's why he was on this mission. Um, but, you know, also they sang songs, which is uh, <laughs> which is uh, something that we're going to have to play for you now. Some classic astronaut audio. This is Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt strolling through the park one day, as the song from the 19th century goes, but it was on the moon. I was strolling on the moon one day. Those guys are having fun. There's no way around it. <laughs> Month of December. No, it's May. It's not May. It's December. We're on the moon and it's December. Uh, yeah, they they were having a good time. Like there there definitely are reports about how that they they were they were just like saying all sorts of stuff and humming and singing and stuff. They were having a great time out there. Apollo seventeen had numerous locations to visit during their three EVAs. Um, we're not going to cover all of them, but there were there are a few that really stand out. Each of these stops had a station number. Uh, at station number three, Schmidt stumbled and fell to the ground. And again, sort of like the kind of fun, jokey atmosphere of 17, uh, Capcom and the future shuttle astronaut Robert Parker joked that NASA's switchboard had lit up seeking Schmidt services for Houston's uh, ballet groups, which is pretty <laughs> funny because he kind of fell and they like, oh, you're like a, you know, like ballet. Pirouette. And, yeah. yeah. Um, that site has since been named Ballet Crater, which is pretty <laughs> cool. And one of its samples was opened for the first time just this year. So a, a a subset of these return samples were left sealed with the idea of we will have better technology in the future to study these. Let's leave some of them preserved and let future generations look at it. And so one of the samples from Ballet Crater uh, just got opened and is being studied now, which is really cool five decades later. Yeah, that's us. We're the future generations now. We are. Then there's the fourth station, Shorty Crater, and it it led to a very dramatic surprise for the astronauts. Something you don't see every day on the moon, as you can hear in this clip. Oh, hey! Wait a minute. What? Where are the reflections? I've been fooled once. There is orange soil. 
Well, don't move it till I see it. It's all over. Orange. Don't move it till I see it. I've stirred it up with my feet. Hey, it is. I can see it from here. It's orange. Where did I put my visor up? It's still orange. Sure it is. Crazy. Orange. I've got to dig a trench, Houston. Yeah, I guess they better work fast. It really is. The same color as the Temperature on the set is about 100 and, uh... Temperature on the set is about 102. It's almost the same color as the LMP decal on my camera. Okay, copy that. That is orange, Jack. Yeah, who, who sees orange on the moon? This orange soil... Um, which they thought was a was basically rusted soil, which is a great sign, uh, like you see in the Hawaii volcanoes, especially of uh, volcanic action. It was actually not that. Um, under analysis back on Earth, it, it was pyroclastic glass. It's actually orange uh, glass from a volcanic eruption or a or an impact 3.6 billion years before. So much older than they thought it was. You know, back in in uh, 1972, people were excited uh, back on Earth. They thought that they had come across a volcanic vent. But it turns out that this is from what they call a fire fountain, which is uh, something that happens when there's an impact. Um, and it was millions of years after volcanic activity had stopped at the site, but there was an impact and the fire fountain is basically this pyroclastic glass that rains down after the impact. Still very dramatic and one of those signs of having a human being there to notice uh, the color of the soil and realize that something is out of the ordinary. He says, oh, let me open my visor and like, oh, it's the same color. And he's and he's comparing the color to a label on a piece of equipment. You can hear in this like genuine excitement yeah. on the part of the crew that they have come across this. It's uh, it's really fun to listen to uh, a lot of audio from this mission. Th- they don't believe their ears or their eyes. They don't believe their eyes right now. Right. We do- we have to listen and believe our ears. They didn't believe their eyes. They was like, what? How could it be on the moon? Mm-hmm. Which is all these grays and like and tans, <laughs> and then here's an orange thing. Another site visited is known as Tracy's Rock, uh, named for Cernan's daughter, who was nine years old at the time of the mission. This rock is enormous, like the size of a house, and you can see in photos. In fact, I used a photo of this for the episode art this week. Uh, it dwarfs the astronauts. I mean, they walk up to it, and it's just massive. And obviously, you need to go uh, dig into that and see what's going on. Yeah, it's a classic, uh, classic photo, classic moment. The Lunar Service didn't get all the fun when it came to the science plan for the mission. For example, the command module was carrying a biological cosmic ray experiment, BioCore. BioCore! Get out the BioCore. Five mice that had been implanted with radiation monitors under their scalps to see whether they suffered damage from cosmic rays. The mice had the official mission designations uh, that were not used because they named them Fee-Fi-Fo-Fum and Fooey. That's very good. That's a really good set of nicknames. They, uh, so here's here's the problem. I think uh, Ron Evans uh, didn't take good care of them because one of them died during the trip. That's not great. And also we have to say they were scientific uh, mice and they, they were dissected afterwards. So, mm. so much for the heartwarming story of Fifi, Fo, Fum, and Fooey. Uh, but anyway, they're trying to figure out again so early in the history of spaceflight and being outside of uh, 
Earth's influence to get a sense of what the biological implications of sending living things out that far would be. We salute you, Fifi, Foam, and Fooey. Yes. Five, five mice and an astronaut are in a spacecraft. It sounds like a joke, but it really <laughs> happened. Uh, like on previous missions, the service module itself was home to numerous experiments and tools, including the Lunar Sounder experiment, which was a radar that could, that could image subsurface features in the lunar crust up to a, a kilometer below the surface. Uh, there's also a laser altimeter, several cameras, which we're going to talk about in a minute, how you get that film back, because the service module doesn't come home with you. You got to get all that stuff out of there. No. It uh, also had a, a far ultraviolet spectrometer and more. So lots of stuff going on on the surface and in orbit around the moon. So three days on the moon, many, 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 many rocks collected. A record number, as we said, record number of rocks. It was time to come home. So on December 14th, Challenger took off from the surface. Uh, Gene Cernan made the last footprints on the moon as he ascended into the limb. He remains the last person, as of this recording, to walk. How's that for optimism? To walk on the moon. Jack Schmidt always said he was the last person to set foot on the moon. Because technically, Gene Cernan went out first, and then Jack Schmidt went out, and so he was the last of the Apollo moonwalkers. And Gene Cernan always was said, "No, no, 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 no. <laughs> Who's who were the last boots on the moon? They were mine." Uh, two days later, the command and service module engine burned all three astronauts back toward the Earth. During that return trip, Evans had to perform an EVA of more than an hour to bring in the film. Uh, from those exterior cameras that had been stored in the sim bay on the service module. This took place on all the Apollo J missions to collect that film from the service module because you jettison it and you don't bring it back with you. Yeah, there's quite a, I, I think quite a technical limitation that was interesting where they're like, they decided to put the film in the service module, which necessitated everybody getting in their pressure suits and one person doing an EVA to go get it. Like that, that's a lot to get that film. It is. But apparently that was the way they felt they needed to do it is the film had to be out there. There was no other place to put it. And yeah. Totally different from today, right? Where you can have remote yeah. cameras and all the data stored locally. These are the film days. It's 1972. This is what you got to do. Yeah, and then you take it to Photomat and get it developed. That's how that works. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of the Apollo program. On December 19th, the Apollo 17 command module, um, America splashed down in the Pacific Ocean, picked up by the USS Ticonderoga. And just like that, the Apollo missions to the moon were at an end. It's a short few years. I mean, the, the density of these, yeah. the cadence of them is so high compared to what we saw with the shuttle and what we expect to see with Artemis. Uh, Stephen, I was thinking about this. You and I went to Johnson Space Center right after the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11, mm -hmm. which means if you think back, I mean, that was before the pandemic. I get it. But like, it doesn't seem that long ago, mm -mm. but the distance between when we were together in Houston and now is essentially the entire time that the Apollo program was landing people on the moon. That's it. Wow. It's not much time at all. No, it was really fast. Really wild. This was the final mission for all three of the Apollo 17 astronauts. Uh, Gene Cernan retired from NASA and the Navy in 1976. Uh, he put his legendary speaking skills to use. He became an expert commentator on ABC during the early days of the space shuttle and appeared in some commercials, as other astronauts did. 
Uh, he died in 2017, three years after he appeared in a documentary about his life, The Last Man on the Moon. Great documentary. It's on Peacock as we record this in the U.S. Um, check it out if you can. Um, good overview of sort of the Apollo program, and he he's a good proxy for that, talking about his time in Gemini and his two Apollo missions, and also kind of wistful, right? It's like, what was the what was the impact, all the marriages that failed? Did he not spend time with his kids? And also just the idea of, like, you have such a, a pinnacle of that so early in your life, and then you spend another 40 years afterward, you know, thinking about it, talking about it, not thinking about it. It's it's a good, it's a really good movie. It is fantastic. Uh, Jack Schmidt left NASA in 1975 and was elected senator from New Mexico. Another one of these astronaut politicians, uh, senator from New Mexico in 1976, but he lost his next election election in 1982, became a successful consultant, um, was also a professor of engineering at the University of Wisconsin. And as of this recording, he is still alive and kicking in the state of New Mexico, digging up rocks, probably. Looking at rocks. Ron Evans went to serve as the backup command module pilot for the Apollo Soyuz test project uh, and then was involved in the development of the space shuttle as a member of the operation and training group in the astronaut office. He retired from NASA in 1977, uh, did some consulting work in and outside of the aerospace industry, and died in 1990. And if you would like, speaking of Johnson Space Center in Houston, which you should go to and see, dear listener, uh, one of the things you will see there and that we saw there is the command module of Apollo 17, the America. It is there at JSC for you to see it. It's really cool. I love seeing these uh, command modules. I've seen a bunch of them now and it's always breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, went to the moon and now here it is. Yep. Right there. I can see it. Pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> Uh, that brings us to our final where are they now for the Apollo program itself. Yeah, although this was the final moon landing, the Apollo program wasn't quite done yet. It had a little bit more to do filling that gap between the moon landings and the space shuttle era. Yeah, it did. Uh, we mentioned the uh, Soyuz test project mission uh, a second ago, uh, but there was also the space station um, Skylab, which we've spoken about before. Uh, that was launched into orbit on the final Saturn V that was flown. And there were three separate crewed missions uh, for a total of 171 days aboard that space station, which was by far the longest that Americans have flown in space at that point. Yeah, people think about Skylab as kind of a failure because it did have lots of technical issues and it did re-enter um, much sooner than intended and all of these things. But it was the real sort of test for the u.s in terms of space station living um and then obviously the soviets did their mere space station and that's all led up to the iss but 171 days in space in 1973 um with those three separate apollo capsule missions flying on saturn ones because they didn't need to go to the moon um, but skylab flew on that last saturn five uh and and was you know big heavy lifting to put it in orbit and then, as Stephen mentioned, 1975, the final flight of an Apollo capsule as part of the Apollo-Soyuz test project in a gesture of goodwill between the two global superpowers and arch competitors in space. They linked up a Soyuz capsule with that Apollo capsule in 75. And then that was it until the space shuttle came on board in 1980, 81. So there was, a, there was that five 
five-ish year gap between uh, Apollo Soyuz and the shuttle. And then, uh, then there's the moon. So in recent years, where is the moon now? It's still there. We right where we left it in in, in 1972. Okay. Uh, in recent years, several countries have made attempted uh, landings on the moon with uh, probes and rovers and robots. We've talked about some of those on past episodes. China has landed multiple probes and rovers. Uh, commercial landers from the U.S. are due to follow, perhaps as soon as next year. Right. We've seen some landings on the on the far side, which does require that communication satellite and all that. And that has been, I think China did that. Um, lots of action on the moon all of a sudden. But we need to say one last time, since Gene Cernan climbed up that limb ladder in 1972, there have not been any people on the moon. The American Artemis program aims to return by the end of the decade. Some experts think China might also be able to land people on the moon by 2030. After 50 years of relative quiet, we may all be talking a whole lot more about the moon again very soon. If you want to find links to read more about Apollo 17, check out the show notes at relay.fm slash liftoff slash 171. As you may know, Liftoff is on a irregular release schedule now, uh, but we are keeping an eye on Artemis and a bunch of other stuff, and I'm sure we'll be back soon. In the meantime, you can find us online. Jason writes at Six Colors and hosts a bunch of other stuff here on Relay FM, as do I. You can find my writing at 512pixels.net. And until next time, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. Bye, y'all. <laughs>